Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here at the end of our technologically challenging week, which is proving no less technologically challenging just now. But we serve a great God who is not contained by technology. Thank goodness for that. We're going to hear some words from the prophet Isaiah as our call to worship. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And so we come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Good morning, God. We are glad to be here today to worship you. In a week when it has been cold and snowy, when our nation has seen disruption, we are glad to have the shelter and warmth of this place where we can meet together, enjoying each other's company and yours. We thank you for all that has been good this week, for the things that have made us laugh, for the things that have made us think, for the things that have made us happy, for the people who have shown us love, for the people who have helped us, for the people who have inspired us. We are sorry for all that has been disappointing this week. For the times when we got cross. For the times when we didn't think. For the times we made other people sad. For the love we didn't show to other people. For the help we failed to give to other people. For the ideas we would not share with other people. God of the morning, we thank you for this day rich in possibilities. God of the winter, we thank you for this season full of opportunities. God of Advent, we thank you especially for Jesus, whose coming we prepare to celebrate. God of love, 
who delights in our prayers and forgives our failings. May this hour of worship bless you richly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Four readings from Isaiah. The first starting at the beginning of chapter 2, which in the Church Good News Bible is on page 672. This is the message which God gave to Isaiah, son of Amos, about Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain where the temple stands will be the highest one of all, towering above all the hills. Many nations will come streaming to it, and their people will say, Let us go up the hill of the Lord to the temple of Israel's God. He will teach us what he wants us to do. We will walk in the paths he has chosen. For the Lord's teaching comes from Jerusalem. From Zion he speaks to his people. He will settle disputes among great nations. They will hammer their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will never again go to war. Never prepare for battle again. Now, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light which the Lord gives us. And then on to the beginning of chapter 9. First seven verses. Find it. The land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali was once disgraced, but the future will bring honour to this region, from the Mediterranean eastwards to the land on the other side of the Jordan, and even to Galilee itself, where the foreigners live. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. They lived in a land of shadows, but now light is shining on them. You have given them great joy, Lord, You have made them happy. They rejoice in what you have done, as people rejoice when they harvest their corn or when they divide captured wealth. For you have broken the yoke that burdened them and the rod that beat their shoulders. You have defeated the nation that oppressed and exploited your people, just as you defeated the army of Midian long ago. The boots of the invading army and all their blood-stained clothing will be destroyed by fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His royal power will continue to grow. His kingdom will always be at peace. He will rule as King David's successor, basing his power on right and justice from now until the end of time. The Lord Almighty is determined to do all this. And now, chapter 42, first nine verses. The Lord says, Here is my servant whom I strengthen, the one I have chosen with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit, and he will bring justice to every nation. He will not shout or raise his voice or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed or put out a flickering lamp. He will bring lasting justice to all. 
He will not lose hope or courage. He will establish justice on the earth. Distant lands eagerly wait for his teaching. God created the heavens and stretched them out. He fashioned the earth and all that lives there. He gave life and breath to all its people. And now the Lord God says to his servant, I, the Lord, have called you and given you power to see that justice is done on earth. Through you, I will make a covenant with all peoples. Through you, I will bring light to the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind and set free those who sit in dark prisons. I alone am the Lord your God. No other God may share my glory. I will not let idols share my praise. The things I predicted have now come true. Now I will tell you of new things even before they begin to happen. And then finally from 56, first eight verses. The Lord says to his people, Do what is just and right, for soon I will save you. I will bless those who always observe the Sabbath and do not misuse it. I will bless those who do nothing evil. A foreigner who has joined the Lord's people should not say, The Lord won't let me worship with his people. A man who has been castrated should never think that because he cannot have children, he can never be part of God's people. The Lord says to such a man, If you honour me by observing the Sabbath, and if you do what pleases me and faithfully keep my covenant, then your name will be remembered in my temple and among my people longer than if you had sons and daughters. You will never be forgotten. And the Lord says to those foreigners who become part of his people, who love him and serve him, who observe the Sabbath and faithfully keep his covenant, I will bring you to Zion, my sacred hill, give you joy in my house of prayer, and accept the sacrifices you offer on my altar. My temple will be called a house of prayer for the people of all nations. The sovereign Lord, who has brought his people Israel home from exile, has promised that he will bring still other people to join them. Amen. So this second Sunday of Advent, our thoughts are linked to the prophets. When we read the Bible, there are two groups of people, for want of a better word, who speak on behalf of God. There are the angels, the supernatural messengers, who from time to time are sent to very specific people in very specific circumstances, such as the angel Gabriel, who visited both Zechariah and Mary with very precise messages about what was going to happen in their lives. And then there are the prophets, who are ordinary human beings who are gifted by God to see as if with God's eyes, to see the world as God sees the world, and to speak on behalf of God as God would speak to wider groups of people in a wider context. Angels on the whole seem to come to individuals and say precisely what is going to happen in their lives, a very specific message. Prophets 
I would argue, have a different role. And it's not foretelling the future. They're not kind of holy fortune tellers, though we can see, as we look back, how what they said did actually relate to real events. But they speak on behalf of God, what is sometimes called forth-telling. It seems to me that the role of the prophet can be understood like this. Firstly, to see the world as God sees the world, and particularly to see their own context, the place in which they live and work as God sees it. And then to speak into that context on behalf of God. Very often the the prophets begin what they say with, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord is blah, blah, blah. And they have two things that they do. They denounce what is wrong and they announce the consequences of continuing in that wrong path, but also an alternative. They offer a new vision. And then the third thing about the prophets, and this is the uncomfortable bit, I think, is they risk being derided and ridiculed and rejected. Because the truth is, what the prophet says is very rarely popular. So when we listen to the prophets, I think there's a job that we have to do as well. Firstly, we have to be willing to be disturbed by what they have to say. Because actually, we might not like what it is they have to say about our little world. And more specifically, our own hearts. This is not about the tone or the delivery of the prophets, though I suspect they were pretty scary people, it has to be said, especially that John the Baptist. I think I look pretty scary this morning with the black fingernails, but there you go. It's not what the way they see it that should disturb, but actually what it is they say. But we also have another task, and that is to just test for the truth. The Bible gives us accounts of true prophets and false prophets, and they all start by saying, thus says the Lord. They all claim to speak for God. What we forget when we read back in the Bible is people have already worked out what was true and what was false. But we have to do the same in our own time. And sometimes it can sound very holy. It can start with, you know, this is what God has said to me. And it might disturb us, but we actually have to think, Does this fit with what we know of God? So we have a a task to be disturbed by the prophets, and we have a task to weigh up what is said, to say, does this fit with what we know about God? And if we decide that what the prophet says is true, we should find what disturbs us is the naming of wrong and the identification of the consequences. The prophet will tell us what is wrong and say, basically, If you carry on like this, this is where it's going to take you. Because God is not happy. God ain't happy, you need to know it. But the true prophet will go on then to give us an alternative. A new vision of what it might be like if we listen and hear what God has to say. I think it's Walter Brueggemann who talks about the prophetic imagination The prophet has an ability to imagine, under God's guidance, a different future. A future that is more in tune with God's desire for humanity, for the world, for creation. 
And this morning we heard four short extracts from the book of the prophet Isaiah, each one of which is an example of that hopeful or prophetic imagination. There's plenty in the book of Isaiah that denounces what is wrong with Israel. A lot of religiosity, fake piety, injustice, arrogance, abuse. These people claimed to be God's people and they were going to their worship services and doing all the outward signs and yet something was wrong. Not in the state of Denmark, but in the nation of Israel. And there are themes that run through this book and through the readings we heard. Themes of darkness and light, which can speak to us at many different levels. Physically, of course, this is a dark time of year. In the northern hemisphere, the days are short. And in Scotland, they are shorter than they are further south. But emotionally, for some people, this is a dark time. Or at least, if not a dark time, a struggle. Practically, life is tough for a lot of people. We look out at the world and there's plenty of evidence of injustice, poverty, sickness, strife. We don't need, I think, to be told what is wrong in the world because we probably already know what's wrong with the world. What we actually need are some candles to light in the darkness, new visions, new hope to inspire us for our work with God. There is that saying, isn't it, that's much better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Our task is not only to light a candle, I would suggest, but to be a candle. So let's just look quite briefly at these four visions that are presented for us in Isaiah. Firstly, a vision for the community of God's people in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 1 tells the people off for their arrogance, their false piety, their injustice, and their dishonesty. That's the bit where God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Or as one of my college tutors used to say, I hate, I despise your mission praise, your Baptist praise and worship, and your good news Bible, in his very scary voice. It's not about outward show. It's about what's going on. And the prophet says to these people, Here is a different way of understanding what it is to be Israel. Imagine Jerusalem as a place that people look at and say, wow, that's what I'd like to be part of. That's a God that I would like to serve. Imagine the community of God's people as having that je ne sais quoi that attracts people to want to be part of it. Imagine a city of peace that is just that. Swords transformed into plows, spears into pruning hooks. Justice for everybody, adequate provision for everybody's needs, and true peace which would spread over the whole world. Could that happen? Could people dare to dream such a dream and live in the light of it? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as saying, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. It's John 12, 32, for those who like chapter and verse. I think that we, as a community of God's people, act as a kind of a signpost. Either that points people to Jesus, or that points them away from him. 
And it's to us that this vision is given of being a means of drawing people closer to God. And I wonder if that might be a vision for us today. Could it be that God is saying to us here, Behold, in the days to come, many nations will come streaming to Hillhead Baptist Church. The community of shalom, the community of peace that listens to God. We are already a community of many nations, but it could be even better, couldn't it? As the writer of Isaiah says, let us walk in the light which the Lord gives us. That's the first vision. The second in Isaiah 9 is a vision for those who struggle. Isaiah 9 begins by addressing a particular part of the Israeli nation. The people who live in the land of Naphtali and Zebulon, near the Mediterranean and in Galilee, the place where the foreigners live. I love that bit, the place where the foreigners live. When Israel fell to Assyria, those were the first parts of the nation to be overrun, the first people to experience hardship. The people who walk in darkness. This is like a, probably a metaphorical darkness. These were people who struggled daily, endured great hardship. And I suspect, though it doesn't say so, they sometimes wondered where God was. Had God gone away and left them? My suspicion is there are people today who feel that life is dark. Life is a struggle. Perhaps it's a struggle through disappointment. Perhaps it's about despair, disaster, doubt. Whatever it is, that darkness can be very real, very oppressive. Maybe it's a darkness of depression. I don't know. But whatever it is, there are people who need to be hearing that new vision, like the people of Naphtali and Zebulon. The people who walked in darkness have seen... Not a flickering candle, not a torch, not even a street lamp, but a great light, a light as bright as the sun itself. There is a promise that there will be laughter and rejoicing once more. There will be freedom from oppression. There will be an end to all that causes fear and anxiety. And how can that be? Not by a magic spell that makes everything nasty go away. And not by a mighty army or a powerful king. Hope will come in the birth of a child. Tiny and vulnerable. And yet in this tiny vulnerable baby is so much potential. The fullness of our triune God, wonderful counsellor, everlasting father, prince of peace, the mighty God. It seems to me this vision is as rich in irony as it is in mystery. How can the mighty God be found in a tiny baby? How can a child be the source of hope for those who find life impossibly dark? We're not told how. We're called to dream 
to imagine, to hope. To trust that as God speaks through the prophet, we can be drawn into this new way of imagining, a new way of being. The third vision, a vision of God's servant. As we move through Isaiah, we come to a portion which is called the servant songs, a set of readings that paint word pictures attributed to Jesus. And I think one of the best known and best loved is that that we heard this morning from Isaiah 42, where we glimpse something of the characteristics and the task. Perhaps they're words that should encourage us in our own walk with Jesus as God's servants. God's servant is gentle and quiet, an encourager, a bringer of justice. This is a bit that I like and I sometimes have to hang on to. God's servant is determined and tenacious, that's posh for stubborn, refusing to give up until the task is accomplished. This, we deduce, is the child of Isaiah 9, now grown into a man. A man who's experienced the world but has not been conformed to it. A man who has experienced darkness but has not been overcome by it. Gentleness, humility and hope remain strong and he has a task to fulfill. And what a task that is. A task that goes beyond Judaism and extends to the whole of God's created world. To be a light for the nations. The one who will open the eyes of the blind and set free those who are in dark prisons. For anyone who feels battered and bewildered in this vision is a very beautiful promise. The hope of a gentle, loving God who in Jesus walks alongside us who will both give us new insight and release us from the prison of despair. And for all of us who listen, there is a challenge also, because we hear again that this is a vision for all nations, for all people, for all places. Freedom and justice is for everyone. There is a lot of darkness still in the world that needs to be dispelled, not by power, but by love, by gentleness, by a kind of shininess, and that je ne sais quoi, that attracts people as they are drawn by the love of Christ expressed through people. And fourthly, a vision of inclusion. I don't think many churches use that reading from Isaiah. I've certainly never heard it read before. The last of our four visions gives us a hint of the extent of God's inclusion, which I suspect is a little different from our own. We need to remember, as it was the Israelis were told at the beginning of Isaiah, observing the Sabbath is not the same as coming to church on a Sunday and doing all the outward things that we think make us nice, good people. If it was that simple, there'd be no need for the book of Isaiah The inclusion of people of all nations perhaps sounds quite innocuous to us nowadays in the 21st century. 
But we need to recall that it wasn't until William Carey, about 200 years ago, that most white people assumed, I apologise to our black friends here, that black people had no souls. William Carey was the one who said, hang on a minute, if Christ died for all, he died for black people as well as white people. White people are not better than black people. We are all equal in God's sight. Christ died for people of all nations. For most of us nowadays, it seems impossible that there was ever a time when people thought that. It's just disgusting. It disgusts us completely. But actually, if we listen to that passage in Isaiah 56, it ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Not many churches will read about castrated men in their services, but we did this morning, and now I've mentioned it. There you go, and there's a few giggles going around. It's not quite nice, is it, to talk about people's bits being cut off? But God says to these people who were beyond the pale, let's not mince our words here, a man who had been castrated was excluded from the covenant. And God says to these people, actually, if your heart is right, you're part of my people. And I think there's a challenge there, for me anyway, and I guess for us. Who is it that is deemed beyond the pale, beyond the embrace of God's love, beyond the covenant? People who kind of challenge our sensibilities and our niceties. Because, you know, there are people today who are victims of genital mutilation. There are people who are childless. There are people who are mentally disturbed. There are people whose sexuality confuses or challenges us. There are people of mixed race. There are people who are divorced. There are people who have committed crimes. And there are churches in Britain where any or all of those would not be welcome. And it goes much further than that. But God says to all people, if your heart's right, then you're welcome. It's a challenge for all of us. Who it is we exclude. It will be different. It might be posh people. It might be people who drive fancy cars. It might be people who speak a funny accent, whatever it is. But God says there's room for all. So just to finish, because I've talked for far too long. I suspect if you've lived in the UK a long time, you will recall the two Ronnie's sketch about the four candles, or the four candles. And I wonder if these four visions of hope are a bit like that. Are they four candles that show us something of God, that lighten our minds, that lighten our world in some way? Or are they fork handles? Absolutely useless unless you've got a fork head to add to it. In other words, when we've heard this, these words this morning, have we heard the prophet or prophets called Isaiah speak for God? Or have you heard me express an opinion? Because the work of the prophet, as was heard in our opening hymn, and in some senses expressed by our Advent ring, is to be a candle in the darkness, to shine the light of God into a world that is filled with darkness. Our Advent hope doesn't lie 
in what I've said. Our Advent hope lies in the Christ of God who came to bring that light for all people. We come now with our prayers for others. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for the hope you have given us in Christ. The meaning and purpose, joy and fulfilment you bring us through him. Hear now our prayer for those who find it hard to hope, those for whom life is hard. We think of those we label as the third world, the hungry and undernourished, the homeless and refugees, the sick and the suffering, human beings just as we are, deprived of their dignity in the desperate struggle for survival. We realise that these problems are not confined to the third world, but are the experience of many in our own city of Glasgow. We thank you for the many aid agencies who seek to help, international ones like Christian Aid, local ones like Glasgow City Mission. We pray that during this time of recession, they may have sufficient resources to meet the needs of those who are without hope. We think of those who are caught up in war, overwhelmed by fear and hatred, their homes and livelihoods destroyed, each day lived under the threat of violence. We pray particularly for the conflict in Afghanistan and between Israel and Palestine, where so many innocent people are caught up in the hostilities. We pray that you will give great wisdom to world leaders as they seek to find a peaceful way forward. We pray too for all who have been injured and bereaved, that they may receive the support and comfort they need and that their hope may be renewed. We pray for those who feel overwhelmed by life, lonely, frightened, sad, weary, many dreading what the next day may bring. Those living with the fear of cholera in Haiti, victims of human trafficking, exploited and abused. Children orphaned because of the AIDS epidemic in Africa. Asylum seekers fearful of a knock on the door. Loving God, may the message of hope which Advent brings burst afresh into our world, bringing hope and healing. And may we, as those who profess the name of Christ, Play our part in showing his love, displaying his care, and fulfilling his purpose, so that he might come again this Christmas to all who have lost hope. We bring our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. It seems right that we bless each other in the words of the grace, and then as we do from time to time, turn outwards to the walls and offer that same blessing.
to the world of which we are a part and into which the prophets call us to be light. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. And now to the world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.